As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's November 25, 1987, in Paris, France. 87-year-old Berthe Finatry is attacked by a young man who strangles her and leaves her for dead. Two days later, he strangles a 73-year-old woman and robs her. She will be his last victim. Days later, the assailant throws himself a lavish 24th birthday party. He invited around 30 friends with the money he had stolen from his last victim. And everyone said that Thierry Paulin was the perfect friend to party with, that he was a fantastic party mate. But no one knew where the money had come from. The money came from his elderly victims. Remarkably, Berta Finatry survives her assault. She's able to give detectives a detailed description of her attacker. Athletic man, mixed race, with an earring. His hairstyle resembled that of the popular 1980s top fade, and Berta said it reminded her of American track and field Olympian Carl Lewis. On December 1st, a police officer recognizes Paulant on the street from a photo fit sketch that has been circulating. He takes him down to the central police station for questioning. The party was finally over for Thierry Paulant. In the autumn of 1984 in Paris, France, two men embarked on a brutal crime spree. In just six weeks, they attacked nine elderly women in their homes, intent on taking their money and their lives. 21-year-old Thierry Paulin and his partner, Jean-Thierry Metteran, not only murdered and robbed, but tortured their victims. They even went as far as making one drink drain cleaner. I must admit that when I studied the case files, the photos and pictures were awful. It was difficult, very difficult. But after the couple split, Paulin continued to make a name for himself. By the time he was finally apprehended in December 1987, Thierry Paulin admitted to the murder of at least 21 helpless elderly women. Paulin was a born criminal. 
In inverted commas, he was complete riffraff. Attacking a grandmother is a triumph without peril, which brings no glory. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Thierry Pollon, the monster of Montmartre. Thierry Pollon was born in the former French colony of Martinique in the Caribbean in November 1963. His teenage parents split up within days of his birth. True crime author Jeffrey Wansell and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley consider the impact of Pollon's erratic childhood. His uh, father abandoned he and his mother pretty shortly after his birth, and went to France. Thierry remained in Martinique and was effectively brought up by his paternal grandmother, who uh, owned a restaurant and apparently neglected him. He made an attempt to go back to live with his mother, who by this point had remarried and had another family, but he didn't fit in incredibly well with that. In fact, he was a troubled young man. This is a young lad who's being passed from pillar to post. He doesn't have a lot of stability, he doesn't have a lot of routine, and life is quite chaotic. He's somebody who finds that, that he never settles in anywhere, and he never really has a, a sense of belonging. After moving to France, Paulin joined the army. He was reportedly discriminated against for his race and sexuality. In 1984... The 21-year-old left the army and moved to Paris and moved in with his mother. He found a job at a performance venue known to host drag shows. I think this was uh, the first time in his life when he really felt a, a sense of belonging. And Thierry was homosexual, and he developed a, a relationship with, with a man he met uh, at this place. Paulon's new love interest was 19-year-old Jean-Thierry Maturin. The like-minded couple had aspirations of performing on the stage, and they also shared a passion for dressing in drag. I think if we look at his relationship, being homosexual in France at this time still carried quite a, a significant degree of social stigma. So even though he's found his, his place in the world, other people are still judging him, and I think that's something that is always going to trouble him. The couple began living together in a hotel called the Laval. Soon, the flamboyant pair became addicted to drugs and were spending much more on a lavish lifestyle than they were making. They got caught up in the wild culture around them, says journalist Dominique Rizet. It was the world of nightlife. They were invited to all the big Parisian parties. There were people who loved to dress up. So they put on a real show. Officer Jean-Claude Moule and prosecutor Philippe Bilger, who worked on the Paulon case, describe the couple's dynamic. 
I think they really loved each other. I think there was real love there. But as part of that, Paulin dominated his partner, which explains a lot the influence in Maturin was under. He existed through Paulin. Obviously, I didn't see them in their everyday lives. I didn't see them living together. I didn't see them laughing. I didn't see them in their most intimate moments. But I think it's clear that Paulin dominated Maturin and gave him the drugs he needed. As so often in life, and that's also true for criminals, there was a strong one and a weak one in this couple. And the weak one was dragged into a life of crime by Paulin during these atrocities in 1984. That much is clear. To pay for their lavish lifestyle, Paulin, with Maturin in tow, turned to crime. Each case, the motive was straightforward, money. Maturin and Pauline wanted to have a good time. They wanted to go out, they wanted to party, they wanted to go to nightclubs, they wanted to indulge their appetite for drugs, they wanted to wear different clothes, they wanted to be acknowledged as homosexual, and they were intent on having as good a time as possible. It was a spree, without any doubt, and a spree of the most murderous kind. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Michel Arnold, who later served as Maturin's lawyer, says the killings always followed the same horrific ritual, which involved tormenting their victims with mental and physical abuse. Thierry Paulin pushed them into the flat, holding their mouths. Jean-Thierry Maturin closed the door. And from that moment on, Thierry Paulin hit them to get them to tell them where the money was. Jean-Thierry Maturin went to look for electrical cables to tie them up, so Thierry Paulin could tie them up. He went to search the flat. If the victim revealed where the money was, Jean-Thierry Maturin went to check if it was there. And in the meantime, Thierry Paulin became incensed and ended up strangling them. The attacks took on many levels of brutality. The killers would rip off their victims' clothes and burn their feet. 
One victim had a wine bottle smashed over her head. Another was suffocated with a mattress. Journalist Dominique Rezet describes one of the most extreme cases where the killers forced an 84-year-old woman to drink drain cleaner. One victim was Alice Benaim. To tell them where her money was, Paula Amaturin forced her to drink a product used for unblocking sinks. You can only imagine the suffering to make her reveal where she had hidden her savings. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton details the horrible reaction consuming drain cleaner has on the body. It is corrosive. So, and then if it's swallowed, it will cause chemical burns in the esophagus and the stomach, can potentially cause perforations. And if the fumes get into the lungs, they can set up a chemical reaction there, causing fluid on the lung and all sorts of potentially lethal consequences. During this two-month spree, the horrific murder sent shockwaves across the country, especially in the Montmartre district of Paris, where the majority of the crimes had taken place. Officers Claude Perroni and Jean-Claude Moule of La Brigade Criminelle, the French homicide division, remember the fear and panic as the killing sprees progressed. We were under immense pressure. The only thing we were afraid of was being on call. In other words, would a phone call wake us up that night? Headquarters calling us about a case, telling us about the killing of an old lady. We dreaded finding more victims every time. I believe that what really struck public opinion was that the killer was targeting old, vulnerable, defenseless people. I believe that's what had the biggest impact on the public. It was the fact that these were defenseless people who were being killed. The public wanted justice. Pressure was mounting. People were stunned, asking, why don't they arrest them? And the longer it went on, everything had been tried to find them. All of the investigations had been done, from our perspective. But the luck factor was missing. Even more pressure was put on the department specifically responsible for questioning and arresting criminals. The sense of fear among the population persisted, compounded by the professional disarray in still having failed to question them and not having been able to do anything to ease the concerns of the public. Detectives scrambled to find any suspects. You have to see that with the atrocity and repetitiveness of the crimes, as well as the fact that there were no central police files at the time, that there was a general feeling that they wouldn't be arrested, and that created a real panic amongst the public. No one had seen the perpetrator or the perpetrators, a stranger in the block behaving abnormally or suspiciously. We had nothing. 
Matching fingerprints were found at several of the murder scenes, but with no central database, these were of no help to the police. It's always easy in hindsight to criticize the errors made by the police, but with the daily atrocities, they were in charge of finding a solution. It was very difficult. At the time, we didn't have the same resources as today. It's a shame we weren't more efficient at the time. We didn't have a forensic database because Paulan was already known to the police. Paulan had first come to the attention of the French police after being convicted of a robbery in Toulouse in June 1983. He was 19 years old at the time. Author Jeffrey Wansel and journalist Dominique Rizet recount the incident. He holds up a grocery store, an old woman who's running a grocery store, uh, with a knife. Not the brightest thing to do, given the fact that she knew who he was and that uh, she lived to tell the tale. And he was indeed arrested and indeed sentenced to two years in jail for the attack. Some reason, and it's not entirely clear to me exactly what that was, perhaps it was to do with his age, perhaps to do with the old woman saying, oh, be lenient. His two-year sentence was suspended. His fingerprints had already been taken, but there was no central database and they remained in a paper file in Toulouse. So there they were, forgotten, as if they didn't even exist. Anyway, they never served for anything because if we had been able to compare the prints to those in Toulouse after the first murder, we would have known that the prints belonged to Thierry Paulin, and the other murders would never have happened. By November 1984, Paulin and his accomplice, Jean-Thierry Maturin, had killed eight women in Paris in just over a month. But then, almost as suddenly as they had begun, the killings stopped. No one could explain why. Officer Peroni speculates. Alors, euh, on était conduit à se poser des questions. So we had to ask ourselves some questions. We could assume that the perpetrators had left the Paris area, or even that they might have been imprisoned, hospitalized, or may even have died. We did some research. Statements were sent to various prisons explaining the modus operandi. We sent the fingerprints we have found at the crime scenes to find out whether identical prints have been taken at the prisons. But the results turned out to be useless. We got nothing but negative feedback. Detectives' theories had some truth to them. Paulon and Maitreen had, in fact, moved away from Paris to live in Toulouse with Paulon's father. But while they were there, the couple's relationship became fractious. That did not turn out to be a success. Pauline and his father argued. Pauline's father fell out with Maturin, who he didn't care for. Pauline and Maturin fell out, and indeed, the relationship collapsed. Maturin returned to Paris... Pauline decided to stay with his father for a time, but that didn't last either. Paulin was alone in life, so was Maturin, but Maturin would never return to crime while Paulin continued. 
In late 1985, 22-year-old Pollon moved back to Paris, and the murders returned with him. Between December of that year and June 1986, another eight elderly women were killed. Dominique Clizet believes money was his only motive. I don't think we can say that he was a serial killer, because a serial killer is a sadistic individual who takes pleasure in killing, who kills for the sake of it, for the pleasure of killing. That wasn't Paula. He kills for money. There was a police officer from the La Brigade Criminale who said, he killed like he was going to the bank. I don't think he even realized the horror of what he had done. He attacked old ladies, he killed them, but in fact he acted as if he was going to get money from the ATM. But he killed them so they couldn't tell anyone. As the number of victims mounted, police noticed they all shared a similar fate. Pollon had developed an MO. À l'époque, j'étais entre guillemets spécialisé au niveau des autopsies criminelles et j'ai at the time, I was a specialist in criminal autopsies, and I was present at the autopsies of some of the grandmothers killed by Paulin. All the grannies were mainly strangled. None of the attacks were what you would call sexual. None of them. They mostly involved stopping the victim breathing, so killing them through mechanical asphyxia. Paulin was now back to living in a hotel. He returned to entertaining the movers and shakers of Parisian society to boost his own social standing. He knew he was limited socially. He had aspirations to be something else, to be recognized, well-known and appreciated. He sought another kind of existence. He had an extremely human side to him. There were people around him, especially ex-lovers, who knew him as a very sensitive person, who could be immensely kind, considerate, extra careful and attentive to others, to those he loved. So how could such an individual, and it is this that is so Machiavellian, how could this type of character transform himself into a killer who commits the act in half a second? Unbeknownst to the people around him, Paulin lived a double life, and his dark side was about to be exposed. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
In August 1986, Pallon was arrested on the outskirts of Paris when a drug deal went wrong. He wasn't happy with the quality of the cocaine he had bought, which led to a fight with his dealer. He assaulted the dealer, who called the police. The police stepped in and Paula was imprisoned, and so his fingerprints were taken again, but were not compared with those of the murderer of the old ladies. They didn't know it at the time, but the police had missed an incredible opportunity to solve one of the biggest cases in French criminal history. Even so, Pallon spent the next 16 months in prison. While he's there, and remember this is the middle of the 1980s, he begins to demonstrate the symptoms of HIV. By the time he is released from prison, he is fully aware that he is HIV positive, which at that point then was effectively a death sentence. HIV had dealt Pollon a death sentence, so he decided to dole out a few more death sentences of his own. Well, after he was diagnosed, his offending really did escalate. And it wasn't just that, that he continued to kill people, but he, he engaged in almost kind of celebratory, spree-like behaviour afterwards. So he would spend a lot of money. He would party for, for days on end. And I think that that realisation that his life was, was limited, um, he was aiming to, to enjoy it as much as he possibly could. And if that meant the trauma and the suffering of other people, then so be it. But in November 1987, Pollon was nearly caught, says Rizet. During one of his final attacks, he was scared off by the concierge of the building. The woman he assaulted screamed, and the concierge came running in, after which a resident of the building saw Paulin escaping. The survivor was 87-year-old Berthe Finaltari. She had been strangled and left for dead. But she didn't die, and detectives hoped she might be able to provide a description of her assailant, though she needed a few days to recover first. Meanwhile, Pollon continued unabashed, and just two days later, he murdered another woman, bringing the suspected total of victims to 21. He threw himself a 24th birthday party just days later. He invited around 30 friends with the money he had stolen from his last victim. And everyone said that Thierry Pollau was the perfect friend to party with, that he was a fantastic party mate. But no one knew where the money had come from. As Pollon partied away, Berta Finaltri recovered and gave detectives a description of her attacker. He is a big guy, 1 meter 82, athletic, 75 kilos, mixed race, with an earring, a haircut like Carl Lewis, blonde hair. A photo of it was created by the forensic department, the very same sketch that would be displayed in police and gendarmerie departments everywhere. On December 1st, 1987, 
four days after claiming his final victim, Thierry Paulon was arrested on the streets of Paris. A police officer who had seen the photo fit sketch recognized him and took him down to the central police station for an ID check. Officer Peroni recounts the day Paulon came into the station. I remember seeing him coming up the stairs under police escort. And of course, most of La Brigade Criminelle were waiting for him to arrive, to see who this guy was, what kind of person he was, etc. Everyone had worked hard on this case, so everybody was very interested in seeing him. Detectives interviewing Pallon had a plan to get him to confess. They had a bottle of the same cleaning fluid he used to kill Alice Bonaim in 1984 in their arsenal. When Thierry Paulin was arrested, he was taken to La Brigade Criminelle and put in front of a policeman who would be listening to what he had to say. And this policeman had placed a bottle of caustic soda under his desk. Paulin was opposite him talking about the murder of Alice Benaim. The officer said, and Alice Benaim? To which Paulin replied, yeah, I don't remember. There were two of you, Paulin. Really, I don't remember. Really. Listen, it would be good if you do remember. There were two of you. Paulin was finding it difficult to come up with anything to confess. And then the policeman stuck his hand in the desk, pulled out the bottle of chemicals and said, and this, what is this? Paulin replied, it's not mine, that's Maturin. And just like that, he provided the name of his accomplice. Although he admitted to killing 21 people, the police charged Paulin with 18 murders due to insubstantial evidence. Paulin soon began to tell detectives everything they wanted to know. Je le savais malade du sida. Donc déjà conscient de d'une chronique de mort annoncée. I knew he was ill with AIDS, so already conscious of a chronicle of a death foretold. He knew that he was going to die. He had nothing left to lose, perhaps an urgent need to open up, to free himself. I would say even more to confess to the harm he had done, which meant that when he spoke to me, he told me everything. He got it all off his chest, demonstrating his extraordinary memory, his memory of the times, the locations and the details of the crimes he had committed. He relived everything he had done in front of me. That impressed me. It didn't take long for him to provide details of virtually every murder he had committed. He even told them the colors of the curtains, for example. Details about the crime scenes that only he could have known, that no one else but the victims could have known. He was a cold, determined man, the kind you don't encounter very often as a police officer. Given the number of victims and the manner in which these people were killed, he didn't particularly show any remorse. It's almost an act of religious repentance to say, I have killed, I did that. It liberates the conscience. He had nothing more to gain, nothing more to do with the world. He was already dead. 
Forensic psychiatrist Sergei Bornstein visited Paulin in custody to prepare a report for the impending trial. He nous a traité comme des importants, des gens qui venaient le gêner dans sa cellule. He treated us like nuisances, people who had come to bother him in his cell. So he had to be very patient in trying to get a fair bit of information from him. Actually, he didn't show any signs of specific mental problems, but rather long-term psychopathic activity. Palan's violence towards older women is thought, says Bornstein, to stem from resentment towards his own grandmother, who had neglected him as a child. Maybe he was taking revenge for the faults of his family of origin. He probably bore the scars of his childhood, manifesting itself in his hostility towards old women. There was most likely some kind of symbolism at play with him trying to get revenge or to erase the cruel elements of his childhood. Du symbolique où il essaie de se venger ou d'effacer des éléments cruels de son enfance. Here we've got an individual who was constantly rejected at several different levels, rejected by his mother, didn't fit in with his wider family, rejected by his peers at school. And even society, given the inherent racism and the inherent homophobia, it just shows the impact that the combination of these rejections can have on an individual. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Jean-Thierry Matrelin was arrested and charged with the eight murders he committed alongside Paulin in 1984. Matrelin's defense lawyer, Michel Arnold, has vivid memories of her one and only encounter with Paulin at a meeting organized at the Palais de Justice by the investigating judge. Il voulait poser des questions à Thierry Paulin he wanted to ask Thierry Paulin some questions in the presence of Jean-Thierry Mathurin in an attempt to find the truth. What was the true role of each man? What exactly had Jean-Thierry Mathurin done? Had he gone further than he had said? Because Jean-Thierry Mathurin said, I only did the searching. It was Thierry Paulin who tortured them, who killed them. And then I saw Thierry Paulin for the first time, and he actually came in laughing, laughing uproariously, a truly unforgettable laugh. It was completely surreal, inappropriate. And I have to admit, 
that I was stunned. And actually, he didn't answer my questions. He just laughed. And Jean-Thierry Mathurin, I saw him, head down, staring at his shoes. Regardant ses chaussures, voulant être ailleurs. Paulon pointed the finger of suspicion directly at his ex-partner. He blamed him for everything. It was Jean-Thierry Mathurin who had done it all. Him, he was in there for nothing. It was the complete opposite of what the case file said. Nothing came of it. And Paulon never did go to trial. On April 17, 1989, Thierry Paulon died in the hospital wing at Rennes Prison. He was 25 years old. Paulin escaped the trial. Unfortunately, it was AIDS that killed him. And, of course, we can lament the fact that the mastermind, the instigator, was never brought to justice. This much is clear. Forgive me for being crude, but the criminal justice system took what was left. In other words, Maturin. Paulon's death meant that his accomplice, Jean-Thierry Mataron, was left to face the weight of the French justice system alone. Philippe Bilger was prosecuting. It is clear that French society had been afraid for a long time in the face of the atrocious murders of the old ladies. And as soon as the trial came around, of course, public curiosity descended on the trial for which only Maturin remained. Maturin's trial began in December 1991. Maturin was on trial for the murder of eight women in just over one month during the autumn of 1984. The details of the slayings were horrifying. The photos and pictures were awful. It was difficult, very difficult. I must admit that when I studied the case files, I made sure that I didn't... I didn't have lunch. I didn't have dinner. I couldn't. I couldn't. Paulin may have been dead, but forensic psychiatrist Sergei Bornstein says his presence was felt in the courtroom. Oh, au procès, uh, le fantôme uh, de, de Paulin était là. The ghost of Paulin was present throughout the trial, and they asked me to speak too, and I spoke about Maturin, but I brought up all of the encounters I had had with Paulin. So I described this wicked character and his hatred for humanity, especially old ladies. And that really interested the court. He may no longer have been there, but his ghost hovered over the room. It was unbelievable. I think that even if he had been given the means to do so, Paulin would never have found redemption, because he had a hard core of criminal perversity within him. While, obviously, I would have requested the maximum mandatory prison sentence for Paulin, 
I wanted Matarad to receive a slight reduction in his mandatory sentence, to really indicate the difference between the two, and to do as if Paulin was also present, as if he was there too, in a certain way. You have to realize that at the time, we had just abolished the death penalty, and because of that, people were marching in the street, calling for the murderer of these old ladies to be executed. The main perpetrator of the murders was no longer able to be punished, so the court could only deal with the one offender who was still alive. But many felt that Matorin was far from being just an accomplice. This is crucial, because calling him an accomplice can make you believe that he didn't have a hand in the crimes like Paulin, the mastermind, did. He is the co-instigator, of course, but I have always thought that Matarin probably wouldn't have committed the crimes he was found guilty of had it not been for Paulin. There is a considerable difference between the monster Paulin and Matarin his submissive colleague, who only followed, manipulated by Paulin, who was far more intelligent than him, who was a very subtle man, but one who put all of that aside in favor of evil. He was two men in one, with one side well adapted to society, and the other a monstrous delinquent. On December 20th, 1991, four years after his arrest, Jean-Thierry Matrin was given a life sentence for his part in the murders. He filed a request for conditional release, similar to parole, in 2007. He was released in January 2009, having spent a total of 21 years in prison. Je suis profondément convaincu. I'm absolutely convinced you should never lose faith in humanity. So, that's my belief. I think even if you have committed terrible, atrocious acts, you can work towards turning over a new leaf with sincere remorse and the desire to redeem yourself. I think it's possible, and that our society has to work towards giving such people a chance. Maturin a réussi à gommer. Maturin managed to erase quite a few memories and adapt to a normal social life. It was a very rare therapeutic success because this is someone who has obviously committed crimes, participated in a series of crimes, who has a recovered some kind of conscience, and from that time on is leading a completely decent life. We are faced here with a remarkable case of redemption. You know, if I had been in charge, I would have kept Matarin in prison forever, without any qualms. This much is clear. You see, I wouldn't have cried if they told me Matarin would live the rest of his life in prison. I am convinced that without Paulin, Matarin wouldn't have done a thing. 
Although he was never convicted because of his premature death, Paulin is still remembered in France as the monster of Montmartre. He was a vile being, a real monster. He really was the worst criminal I have ever seen in the course of my long career. The worst. I think he was a wicked young man. I think he was deeply troubled. But that is no excuse for the deaths of 19, 20, 21, 22 elderly women, nor for the brutal manner of many of their deaths. Paulin was a born criminal. In inverted commas, he was complete riffraff. Attacking a grandmother is a triumph without peril which brings no glory. I dare say that I think he was in complete denial of all human values. He saw other people as just animals. He had an animalistic side to him, what we would call dehumanization. How can you kill a granny without thinking about what she stands for and all that kind of thing? He had a savage side to him, devoid of all forms of humanity. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A very special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, please leave us a review. We appreciate it. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. In February 1994, the badly burned body of a teenager was found on a plot of land in Sunderland, England. It was the third similar death in just three months. He knew that he got sexual excitement from killing them. He knew that he wanted to destroy evidence of the strangling by setting fire to them. The deaths of three teenagers were all initially believed to be mysterious, but not suspicious. Pathologists had ruled out murder. It would take a new detective to finally uncover the truth and bring justice down on a 25-year-old local who the papers began calling the Sunderland Strangler. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.